Okay, everybody, welcome out to the Professional Dork Podcast, a storytelling podcast that sometimes brings you very serious professional stories that attempt to have great writing and relevance to society and all that. And sometimes they're whatever dorky things came out of my head. And today it's definitely the latter. It's another one of those fandom mashup sort of episodes. Um, and while I don't guarantee it makes any sense in the first place, it is really going to test your knowledge of IMDb. A lot of the jokes and references are, are going to be very dependent on whether or not you can remember which actor was in which movie and, and also with that other actor from the other movie. Like, basically you have to be really good at playing Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. But I was in kind of a mood this weekend, and it was really fun to write. I hope it's just as fun to listen to. If not, well, that's what my comment section is for, I guess. <laughs> anyway, if it turns out that you do like it, please remember this show has a Patreon to help pay for hosting fees and ensure that I can continue to devote time to writing these kinds of things. Every little bit helps, but at $2 a month, you get the reward of double the episodes. So if you're wondering where all the even-numbered episodes went, they're in a special feed for the people who pledge $2 a month on Patreon. So if that at all interests you, if this story makes you laugh so hard that you just have to have more, then please consider going over to patreon.com slash professional dork um, and looking over the rewards there. Signing up to pledge $1 or $2 a month so that this show can keep going. But whatever, you guys don't want to talk money now. You want to listen to a story, don't you? So <laughs> sit back and enjoy whatever the crack this is. <laughs> the tale of Obi-Wan Kenobi trying to understand the mysteries of the Force. It's called obi Serious. Please enjoy it. Okay, so after the events of the prequels, Obi-Wan Kenobi um, has moved to Tatooine. He's dropped off baby Luke with Owen and Beru, retreated to the desert to become that crazy hermit Ben Kenobi, and commune with the Force. The late Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn had finally achieved his lifelong dream of becoming one with the living Force and proving that everything the Jedi Council thought they knew about death and the Force was wrong. Obi-Wan was like, okay, Master, you win. You always do. Just teach me how to do the cool disappearing body trick. So, Obi-Wan is going home after picking up some groceries, and he's looking forward to an evening of some hardcore meditating. And as he's trucking through the sand dunes, he sees a strange box just on the ground, half buried by sand, and he picks it up. It's a brown wooden box. Pretty nice, but, you know, pretty basic. He opens the box to see what's in it and sees a bunch of green and yellow rings. Odd. But odder still, the second he touches one of the yellow rings, puts it on its finger, Obi-Wan suddenly finds himself transported to a strange wood with a bunch of pools as far as the eye can see. It's very beautiful, but they're all kind of the same. A little pond and a tree, and a little pond and a tree, and over there, another pond and a tree. And obi was like, well, this is trippy. And he walks around for a bit, just finds more pools and more trees. Um, he puts on one of the green rings, and nothing happens. Um, and, you know, the yellow rings aren't taking him back, so he just keeps wandering through the woods until 
something amazing happens. A lion walks up. And yeah, normally that wouldn't be so amazing, assuming Obi-Wan has ever been to Earth and seen a lion, but even if not, this guy has seen scores of bizarre aliens and he's got a lightsaber. He can handle any trouble. But then the lion starts talking. And it's not so much what the lion says, but how he says it, because he's got this serene, gentle voice, vaguely Irish accent, and Obi-Wan does a double take, like, Master Qui-Gon, is that you? And the lion is like, yes, Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan's like, what the criff? And after extended sequence where Obi-Wan lets loose some colorful Clone War era swear words and gets about as emotional as he will allow his Jedi self to be, they get down to business. Master, why are you here? And why are you a wild animal now? Mysteries of the Force, Padawan, it's not important, Qui-Gon says. More importantly, how did you get here? And Obi-Wan explains the rings he founds and the lion nods. Yes, I forgot about those. I was meaning to get rid of them. They just cause so much trouble. And Obi-Wan asks what exactly it is they do. The yellow one teleported him here, but the green one hasn't done anything, and where is here, anyway? And Qui-Gon replies that this mysterious land, with all the shiny ponds and trees, is the wood between the worlds. The yellow rings are magical objects that transport a person to the between world, and the green ones will take a person out of the between land, but only when they're standing in one of the pools. Yes, each pool represents a different world, and the green ring is an all-access pass to all of them. Well, this is amazing, Obi-Wan thinks, and he has so many questions. Other worlds like other galaxies? Further than wild space? Is this where we go when we join the Force? And again, really, why are you a lion? Qui-Gon ignores the last one and chooses to explain some of the other worlds. There's worlds with magic and wizards, worlds with monsters and vampires, worlds where that little baby girl that Bail Organa's raising grows up to have a set of twins that attend Luke Skywalker's Jedi School, and worlds where everything is made of Legos. Qui-Gon suggests that Obi-Wan tries one out, mostly so he doesn't have to explain what Legos are. So Obi-Wan walks up to a pool, looks down at it for a minute, and adjusts the green ring on his finger, takes a deep breath, and jumps in. He finds himself in 18th century Paris. It's a completely foreign land to him, but we recognize it by the giant red windmill. That windmill is representative of a nightclub, the Moulin Rouge, and Obi-Wan is a little weirded out to walk by the place at night. He saw a lot of the underworld in his time as a Jedi, especially during the Clone Wars, but it's still a bit over the top, especially when people start breaking into song. He walks around for a bit and runs into a heroin addict named Renton, trying to buy drugs. Obi-Wan waves his hand and tells Renton he needs to go home and rethink his life, which works for about as long as it takes for the kid's old French to catch up with him, but you tried, Obi, you tried. This village near Paris really is a hive of scum and villainy, more so than even Moss Eisley sometimes. He runs into all sorts of criminals, liars, and conmen, including one named Stephen Russell, who declares himself in love with Obi-Wan on the spot. Obi-Wan is supremely not interested and moves on. 
And luckily, he's dressed kind of like a hobo, so most of the prostitutes don't bother him, like, he's got no money. But that doesn't drown out his natural charisma and leading man charm. He gets more attention than he wants. Um, but just as Obi-Wan is about to put on that yellow ring and get out of here, he trips over an unconscious Argentinian who suffers from a condition called narcolepsy. And a dwarf dressed as a nun runs up and explains that they're actors, writers, bohemians, and they're creating a very modern play called Spectacular Spectacular. But they're having trouble with the music, and the lead actor keeps falling asleep, and they need someone to stand in for the sensitive Swiss poet Goatherd. And before he knows it, Obi-Wan has a script in his hands and is reading the part while strange music plays on the absynthesizer, whatever that is. He does have a brilliant moment where he bursts into song about the hills being alive, but ultimately insists that he can't be a part of this show he wasn't planning to stay. Even when Audrey the writer quits, Obi-Wan insists he can't write the show for the Moulin Rouge. He's not even a real bohemian revolutionary. And what, the bohemians say? Because you totally dress like one. Do you believe in freedom? And Obi-Wan's like, yes. Beauty? Yes. Truth? Of course. Love? Well, no, you see, I'm a Jedi, he explains. Love leads to attachment, which can lead to jealousy and the dark side. But he trails off in this explanation when he sees a poster for a courtesan, the most beautiful courtesan in all the world. And her name is Satine. That's familiar. Obi-Wan thinks about it for a second, then declares... Yes, I am a child of the revolution. Love is a many-splendid thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. He's hired as the show's writer, and now he can enter the Moulin Rouge to find out if this is in fact that Satine, his true love who was killed by Darth Maul during the Clone Wars. But what would the Duchess of Mandalore be doing on this strange planet with all the can-can skirts? It really makes no sense, and it's testing all of Obi-Wan's Jedi reserve just to be here. But he goes in and he sees Satine swinging from a trapeze and singing a song about diamonds and how they're a girl's best friend. A man named Harold Zidler seems to be in charge of the show, and Obi-Wan mind tricks him into letting him talk to Satine. She doesn't recognize him as a Jedi master turned general, or says she doesn't, but she does mistake him for a duke. While they talk, Zidler announce another act, a shy, young little singer. Um, Satine says she's very good. She can imitate the great singers like Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, Billie Holiday, and a score of other greats that haven't technically been born yet. And Obi-Wan tries to be impressed, he really does, but eventually has to admit that he has no idea who those people are. He also has to admit, in addition to his well-documented attraction to Satine, um, he's also very attracted to the girl on stage. He hasn't had this much trouble with love and attachment since he and Siri Tachi were kids. Anyway, Zidler is busy painting up this little voice to be the next big sensation, and he wants to convert the Moulin Rouge into a legit theater, no more prostitution. Um... So he's kind of busy with that. So Obi-Wan tells Satine um, that the Satine that may or may not be the Duchess of Mandalore, let's get out of here. You have no future here. And Satine likes the idea of marrying a duke and becoming a duchess. So she agrees. And Obi-Wan has to sit and explain like, no, that's not the situation at all. 
In the process, he bursts out into an Elton John song. It's, it's beautiful, but he's a little embarrassed. The whole thing is highly uncivilized. Anyway, there is a duke, and he wants desperately to have Satine, enough that he'll kill Obi-Wan for that. Obi-Wan's not too concerned at first. He has a lightsaber. Really, the confrontation seems to be going in his favor, at least until one of that addict Renton's friends starts a bar fight and all the Corellian hells break out. It's chaos, and Satine is lost in the crowd, and Obi-Wan's box of green and yellow rings gets stolen. Uh-oh. So now Obi-Wan has to find Satine and find his way home. And that's when Steven Russell pops up again. I love you, Obi-Wan Kenobi! He claims to be a detective. He can track down Satine and those rings. Obi-Wan isn't sure how far the guy can be trusted, but the Force is presenting no other options. He follows Steven out of the Moulin Rouge and begins the search, eventually wandering out of Paris and over the border to England. Here, he runs into a young girl named Emma, who tries to match him up with some other eligible ladies, despite the fact that his manner of dress is most odd. Um, Obi-Wan does buy a top hat. It's very dashing, very civilized, though it doesn't quite go with his Jedi robes. Steven loves it, though. From there, they keep tracking down Satine and or Renton, following clues from the passers-by and Stephen is sure they're on the right track when they arrive at a sort of suburbs, but Obi-Wan is a little weirded out by this neighborhood. It's too happy, too clean. Something's just a little not quite right about it. it it's all a little too perfect. Except for one house in the neighborhood. A new house getting built right now. Um, it's still under construction, but when Obi-Wan and Steven go over to ask if the, any of the workers have seen a tall redhead named Satine or a skinhead who looks exactly like Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan has to do a double take. Because a man in a black suit, metal mask and helmet, long billowing cape, is building this house. Lord Vader, he stammers, what on earth are you doing here? Because the last time Obi-Wan saw Anakin, he was limbless and burning next to a river of lava. The fact that he's here is more than a little disconcerting. Vader turns and breathes. Ah, <laughs> uh, Obi-Wan. When we last met, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. <laughs> Only a master of evil doth, Obi-Wan retorts, eyes flickering over the surroundings and apparently a master of roofing techniques now. I'm building my new empire, Darth Vader explains. I was always more of a hands-on guy, not like my new master. Yes, your new master. How's that going? Obi-Wan asks, a little surprised that they haven't whipped out lightsabers yet. Um, Vader replies that things are fine, can't complain. Except for the part where he's a quadruple amputee suffering from third-degree burns and thanks, Master, and Obi-Wan decides to change the subject. Um, we're looking for the Duchess of Mandalore. She's a redhead now, Obi-Wan tries. Might as well. Vader just laughs. I know where she is, my old friend, he says. But you'll never find her. Stephen Russell steps up to try to cajole Vader into telling them Satine's location, and Vader force chokes him. 
Obi-Wan is forced to draw blades to protect the guy, and soon they are both on the run again. And run they really, really have to, because Vader sets the cops on them, and it turns out that Steven has several warrants out for his arrest, the least of which being defrauding a giant company, and now Obi-Wan is accused of aiding and abetting. So they both get thrown in jail. Stephen thinks it's romantic, Obi-Wan is decidedly less amused, but Stephen redeems himself at least a little bit and starts using his conman skills to get Obi-Wan's lightsaber smuggled into their cell. Now Obi-Wan is grateful, and he can break out and go look for Satine. And one day, he sees her. His beautiful Satine, now blonde again, pushing a cart down the grocery store aisle. He tries to talk to her, but she's just too detached, too perfect. He's like, when did you go through Jedi training? But Satine isn't shielding her emotions. No, there's a bigger plan here. And Steven and he decide to get to the bottom of it. They infiltrate the neighborhood, posing as a couple, to the great delight of Steven. And Steven immediately is accepted into a circle of friends, all male friends who get together often to talk about their wives. And apparently, this men's club does a lot more than just talk about changing their wives. They actually kidnap them and plant technology chips in their necks to make them submissive, docile, robot-like. Sooner or later, Steven starts to think, this isn't a terrible idea, I'm lying to Obi-Wan all the time anyway, and so Obi-Wan finds a bunch of men on his doorstep ready to kidnap him. Luckily, he's not an idiot, and he has a lightsaber. He defends himself, and while all the men are busy with that, Satine sneaks into the men's club and destroys the software that made all the wives submissive, reverting them back to their original personalities. See, she was never a robot, just pretending to be one. And Obi-Wan is so happy to hear that, more so when she comes up to him after the fact and tells him that all of his Jedi fighting is an offense to her pacifist ideals. She's also upset that Obi-Wan keeps showing up to ruin her undercover operations with all his violence, like, really. But she is happy to see him, despite herself, and allows the man to get all emotional over thinking she was dead all those years. Um, meanwhile, Steven goes back to jail. Alone this time. And Obi-Wan and Satine decide to track down Renton for those green and yellow rings. They do find Renton at a nice house in the neighborhood, hooked up with some high school girl. Once again, Obi-Wan waves his hand at Renton like, you really need to go home and rethink your life. But they get the rings back from him. It's not hard. Like, they didn't look valuable enough to sell for drugs. And now that they have them, Obi-Wan invites Satine to journey back to the Wood Between the Worlds with him, maybe even eventually back to Tatooine. He's not sure if this is time travel or parallel dimensions or what's going on here with Satine being alive, but he figures that they can sort it out in time, and certainly the exile on Tatooine will go by much quicker with a friend to talk to. Um, Satine is a little disbelieving of Obi-Wan's story, but she agrees. Except... She starts coughing, and then dies in his arms. All very suddenly, they didn't even get a musical number, and Obi-Wan is very distraught, like he's had too many loved ones die in his arms now, but unfortunately, it doesn't look like Satine will be coming back a third time. He grieves, and is eventually forced to put on a yellow ring, and return to the between world alone. 
When he gets back, Qui-Gon the lion asks what happened, and Obi-Wan doesn't want to talk about it. He puts on a green ring and jumps into the pool to his own world, returning to Tatooine even more depressed than when he'd left it. He spends several days just wandering around all depressed around the Junlin Wastes, only leaving to go check on Luke or pick up a few supplies from nearby townships. One such supply run to Moss Eisley, um, he's accosted by some people involved in the Tatooine politics, now that it's under the control of the Galactic Empire, the new empire set up by Palpatine. Like, at first, Obi-Wan is terrified. Vader's found me. Does he know about Luke, etc.? But it turns out they have no idea who this Ben is. Um, they want him for a completely different project. A rich businessman has traveled off-world several times um, to places like Naboo and Alderaan, and he now wants to introduce salmon fishing to his homeworld of Tatooine. As Obi-Wan was clearly not born here, um, and must therefore have lived off-world, he's conscripted to help with the project. And Obi-Wan thinks the whole idea is bonkers, salmon fishing in the Junlin Wastes, but he figures refusing will call more attention to him than just going along with the madness, so he sits in meetings and tries to understand how on earth he could possibly make this work. And so the project goes very slowly for months, eventually years. Finally, after a great deal of time, they have a river and an obscene amount of water for Tatooine and a bunch of salmon to put in the river. The businessman is overjoyed, but just as they're about to do a victory celebration, there's a huge explosion. Sand erupts everywhere, water escapes and evaporates, fish die. Obi-Wan looks around, he thinks it was a bomb, but what, what exactly happened with it? Who could have set it? And he spies young Luke, now much older, and Luke looks kind of pale. Obi-Wan talks with him a bit and gets more and more concerned because Luke is also starting to look a little bit delighted in the explosion that just happened um, and, and kind of shifty and, and guilty. And he's like, did you blow up the river? I admit it was a weird project anyway, but destruction isn't the way of the Jedi. Not that you're supposed to know much about that yet. Sorry, Owen. Um... And, and now you smiles a little strange, Luke, and you dyed your hair green. And, and Luke's like, I've decided I'm done with this desert life. One bad day is all it takes and all that. Moss Eisley needs a higher class of criminal. Obi-Wan's like, Luke. And he's like, my name's not Luke. I'm known now as the Joker. Obi-Wan feels like a sarlacc pit has opened up underneath him. Two of the young people in his care have now turned to the dark side. And Luke is going on and on about how he's going to enact all these evil plans for Moss Eisley, and for every hour that Darth Vader doesn't reveal his identity under the mask, he's going to blow up a hospital. And Obi-Wan doesn't think Luke really wants to know who Darth Vader was before he became a Sith Lord, but it doesn't matter because Vader um, hears about this and sends a transmission through space. For every hour that it takes for the galaxy to deliver Obi-Wan to him and Emperor Palpatine, the Empire is going to blow up a planet. Because apparently they have a Death Star and they can do that now. So that's the situation they're in. Obi-Wan doesn't know what to do. He considers grabbing the rings again and just bailing on the universe, but that's not Jedi-like behavior. 
no, he has to protect Luke from Vader and Luke from himself and the galaxy from Vader and himself from the galaxy and Moss Eisley from Luke. And then a very familiar man in shorter hair and a business suit, yes, but still the same towering height and broken nose and soothing voice shows up. Qui-Gon. And he says, Moss Eisley is beyond saving. And Obi-Wan's like, what? Qui-Gon says, when a forest grows too wild, a purging fire is inevitable and natural. And Obi-Wan gets concerned, like, you're talking like a vigilante master. And Qui-Gon's like, no, no, no. A vigilante is just a man lost in the scramble for his own gratification. He can be destroyed or locked up. But if you make yourself more than just a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, and if they can't stop you, then you become something else entirely. Something else, Obi-Wan dares to ask. And he gets his answer. A Jedi, Mr. Kenobi. And Obi-Wan shakes his head like, this goes against everything you taught me, master. And Qui-Gon's like, fine, okay, go save the city. But you'll need my help. I have a specific set of skills. But before they can do anything, suddenly a voice booms from the clouds in the sky. Remember who you are. And they all look up, especially Luke. What? Again, the voice speaks. Remember. And the clouds part. And we see it's a lion, majestic in the sky, light shining off of it. Luke's like, Dad? Remember who you are, the deep-voiced lion insists. You are my son, and the one new hope. Remember who you are. And the lion fades away. Luke is humbled and decides to turn back from his life of crime. He'll go be a farmer until it's time to train to be a Jedi, and he'll take his place as leader of the Order or whatever. Obi-Wan breathes a sigh of relief, like that's one problem down. Now, how to get that bounty off of his own head? An idea hits, and he grabs the yellow rings, teleports to the wood between the worlds, changes to the green ring, and jumps back into the pool that led him on this crazy adventure. Renton, he grabs the junkie's arm. Renton, how would you like it if I gave you a lot of money? And Renton thinks about it. On the one hand, a lot of money could buy a lot of heroin. Or a lot of money could get me away from my crazy old flatmates. Choices. Either way, he wants the money. Good, Obi-Wan says, and uses the rings to take them both back to Tatooine. He sends Renton to the spaceport and gets him on a ship off-planet. Um, he's like, put on this brown robe, grow out your beard, and start calling yourself Obi-Wan. Hopefully by the time Vader figures out he's chasing the wrong man, Luke will be grown up by then. Renton's like, cool, this is trippy, and off he goes. Little do they know, Stephen Russell has broken out of jail and has been following them, and is now stowing away on Renton's spacecraft, so they're all going to have to deal with that at some point. Um, but it's not Obi-Wan's problem anymore. He goes back to his hut in the Juneland Wastes, abandons the, the poor dead river, and resumes his meditation, eventually talking to Guagon. His master says, You've traveled the worlds. Now you must journey inwards to what you really fear. Your student's fall was not your fault. Your training is nothing. The will is everything. If you make yourself more than just a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, you'll become something else entirely. Are you ready to begin? And Obi-Wan's like, Yes, I am ready to become a Force Ghost Master. I just have one question. He's like, Yes, Padawan. 
that lion in the sky earlier, it sounded a lot like Anakin. Or Vader. And you were a lion earlier. Do we all turn into lions when we join the Force? Qui-Gon's like, no, not everyone becomes a lion. Master Yoda won't. He's like, oh, what will Master Yoda turn into? And suddenly, breaking into the meditation, Hi-ho, Yoda the Frog here is. And Obi-Wan's like, I'm done. I'm so done with all of this. And he buries the rings in the sand and doesn't meditate for like five years until he's put this all behind him and repressed it. Eventually, he's able to move on, carry out his destiny and train Luke, and does rejoin the Force, at which point his master may have become a lion upon joining the Force, as will, apparently, Anakin. Yoda became a frog, but Obi-Wan, for whatever reason, ends up being reincarnated as a French candelabra. The End So I hope you enjoyed that story. Like I said, I was kind of in a mood (laughs) this weekend. Um... It made me laugh a lot, but I do recognize that it probably only made sense if you're familiar with all the same movies I am. Or like, really stalwart about memorizing everyone's IMDb page. Still, tis the season to be really nuts about Star Wars, so I hope it was good for a few chuckles. Anyway, if you enjoyed it, please visit patreon.com slash professionaldork and leave some comments, click the little like button, um, sign up and pledge for $2 a month in order to get all the extra bonus episodes. Whatever you want to do, but most of all, thank you for listening. We'll see you all next time with another story.